Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and it is Friday, March 30th, 2012, and I'm virtually with Audrey Waters. Hi, Audrey. Happy Friday. Happy Friday, although those of you listening will probably not hear this till Monday or Tuesday. Okay, well, happy um, Monday then. <laughs> happy whatever. Uh, it was kind of fun, Audrey, to, to see that, that, that we were missed, Yes. Um, not only for the two weeks, but then when I made a mistake in the URL for the podcast that um, somebody really dug around to find it. Flattering. Very good. And considering the sort of the struggles that we have um, are having with Skype, I think we should probably maybe make an open call to listeners to have some good suggestions <laughs> for alternatives for us. <laughs> yes, we did do a little bit of uh, scrambling. Yes. <laughs> with the last recording to get it to, from its original format to get the audio to sync up. Okay, so clearly the big story this week is the Blackboard acquisition of two Moodle hosting companies. Yeah, can we talk be about it, Steve? <laughs> oh, let's talk about it. Now, you know, there are some constraints on me because I worked for Luminate. Luminate was bought by Blackboard, and you know, I'm just going to have to be careful to not look as though I'm, you know... Um, um, you know, somehow know more than I do because I don't know anything. I was as, as taken by surprise as anybody else. But I clearly do not work for Blackboard anymore, so people need to know that. Um, but before we kind of get into the nitty-gritty, there was uh, one sort of overriding question for me in all of this, which is um, there really weren't – people didn't bring out the pitchforks. Not in the way that I've seen before. You know, I haven't seen the sort of, you know, incredibly exasperated, name-calling, ranting kind of posts. Most of what I read was fairly thoughtful, trying to find a rationale for what Blackboard is doing and trying to understand it. Is there any chance that's a reflection of kind of the monetization of ed tech in the last couple of years, especially with the VC money? that everybody's just sort of thinking from a money perspective? That's a really Or did I miss it? That's actually a really interesting observation, too. I mean, I, I had the same sense. In fact, I feel as though sort of looking around at the, at sort of the, the various pundits that wrote things, um, most people seemed very, uh, I thought, very conciliatory to, to Blackboard, which is, um, was interesting considering... I really can't think, I mean, with the possible exception of Pearson, I can't think of another education company that really, oh, Pearson, I would say maybe University of Phoenix. I can't think of another education company that really raises people's hackles quite like Blackboard. Um, and so I thought that most, I don't know if it is um, the influence of money. I don't know if it's sort of acquisition weariness that this is, um, this is, you know, this does seem very much in, in sort of the history of what Blackboard has long done, right, which is sort of gobble up, gobble up um, anyone in its path. Um, but you're right. I mean, I don't think that, or or is or is the other piece of it that sort of uh, we've decided that Blackboard no longer matters um, in terms of, and that in some ways Blackboard's decision to sort of make this pivot was its own admission that its software product no longer matters. Yeah, I, th this was really an intriguing aspect for me, um, both because I think we now are, are attributing actions much more to monetary um, motivations 
than we have in the past, especially with Ed Surge and with the foundations and a lot of money getting thrown around. But I've also noticed that open source isn't really the hot topic in EdTech that it was five years ago, in part because of the cloud. And again, sort of intriguing to kind of drill down on this, it felt to me like Google's apps for education really created such a huge financial incentive for schools to start using a non-open service that in a lot of ways that open source compelling uh, story of the importance of independence and data and the like just kind of got pushed into the background. And so maybe it's just not as big a story right now. Well, I, I mean, you know, I wrote a couple of pieces on on those two those two elements. One on the open source community because I actually do th- I do think that this is something that we um, should definitely watch uh, how um, how the open source community around Moodle and Sakai will um, uh, will will respond to this and how it'll be influenced by by Blackboard's financial stake. I would say in in the development of the open source product. Um, the, and the other piece, I think, is the data story. And I, I think that, you know, when we think about the data, the data that um, all sorts of uh, corporations have about teaching and learn, you know, teachers and learners and schools, I think Google really is, you know, Google, Google actually has a lot of that data. And it's about us sort of individually, right, our personal data, our personal search history and, you know, Gmail data. But it's also it's also certainly potentially um, educational data as well, and I think that that's where the you know that's certainly I mean that's certainly the how Google monetizes um, is is ads against the data, um, and sort of how do we you know how do we think about the the value in data um, per- currently and in the future? Right. So the if you don't know what the product is that's you right i mean so if, if you if we're if, you know part of the story i think you brought up very well was if we don't really understand this acquisition it's because you're the product you the student right yeah and i think that you know i mean i i think that they're i think that learning analytics and educational data in some ways they feel like buzzwords right now it's a lot of you know when we talk about you know data driven decision making at schools it does feel still feel like a, a very it's a it's a it's a buzzword unless sort of we have sort of not really seen anything substantive that we can sort of do actionable you know actionable decision making around all of this data but i think that that, that certainly as the data gets bigger and as our analytics um, and our algorithmic responses to these things get more fine-tuned then data does seem to be data does seem to be the gold mine here and I think that that could be potentially really incredibly useful for learners if they can control and analyze their own data but when all of these clicks and transactions and responses are owned by a third-party company um, I think that we should we should question sort of what's happening there and you know in terms of Right. I mean, I think that, you know, we've never, or students and teachers have always been the users of Blackboard, but will this move, as I said, like, will this move make it clearer that you're the product, if indeed analytics are the big push for for Blackboard in the future? It felt to me like I heard sort of three consistent, um, believable narratives around the acquisition. One was the values in the data. The second was 
that when you're looking to sell content, you want to do anything you can to keep bodies available to sell to. And the third was just staying in the game at the institutional level, meaning rather than let that institution walk off and kind of stop doing business with Blackboard, somehow stay you know, in that relationship with the big institutions. Yeah, I mean, and I think that, you know, one of the pieces that didn't get a lot of um, press, you know, because there were, I think, four or five announced, four or five press releases from Blackboard on Monday. And one of them that hasn't got a lot of um, notice was the fact that they were not, um, can't, they were not sunsetting Angel, or that, or I should say, that, that the, that the, that the death of Angel will, will be um, postponed a little bit longer. And so this, to me, felt like, um, an, one of the attempts to sort of maintain a, a, a client base that if, you know, current angel customers that would have had an opportunity to look elsewhere now, now perhaps will be convinced to stay with Blackboard. Interesting. So what is punctuated evolution? <laughs> uh, punctuated evolution, this was you know, this was the interesting metaphor that um, Ray Henderson, uh, the president of Blackboard Learn, used to describe this announcement. And it's it's a you know it's a evolutionary biology term that means it you know that it appears as though there's stasis, um, and then all of a sudden something really radical happens. And that's the that's what he. Um, that's the phrase he used to describe this this next step for Blackboard, which I thought was 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 rather sly, um, since I think that stasis is something that Blackboard has been accused of for a long time, um, and that now suddenly Blackboard is doing something decisive um, uh, in order to sort of get to the next evolutionary leap. Um, and you know, I think that you know, I, and I, I think that um, actually, I think that Ray Henderson is a, is a really important character in in what's happened and happening at at Blackboard too. I mean, he he was part of Angel, part of the acquisition back a couple of years ago, and has um, you know, I think that what's what's happening at the company now, it's um, I don't I don't you know I don't know how much of that is is sort of his his doing. You know, I have to say, I uh, he speaks well. Yes. And, you know, I have to give him credit for that. And there was a, another place in which he describes sort of the fact that, you know, Blackboard is a growth-driven company. Uh, that was just such a, a, a lovely phrase to use to kind of shift from a negative sort of capitalist uh, aggressive company to being growth driven. I thought he does a really good job of explaining. The other interesting shift, I mean, there's, you know, so many interesting things going on with Blackboard at this moment, too, is that it is no longer a public company, right? It was sold to a private equity firm, I think, late last year. So, again, you know, when, we, when we're thinking about all of the things that are going on in Blackboard, in the education technology industry as a whole, in the LMS industry as a subsector, Sort of what does it what does it mean that um, that that Blackboard needn't worry as much about uh, you know its uh, stock uh, stocks and shares um, that it's now controlled by I think Providence um, Equity Firm. So uh, last year, sort of quietly, most 
or all of Blackboard's community groups were closed down. So the places where users would gather to talk about the products. Um, does what does that mean when they take on uh, very community-oriented projects? Is this something they can kind of hand off to Moodle Rooms and just let them keep doing? Or is there sort of a larger story here about the disconnect between open source communities and Blackboard sort of... Um, I don't want to... You get the sense that Blackboard's much more interested in the institutional buyer than they are in the community users. Yeah, and I, I mean, and this was... I'm pretty skeptical about um, Blackboard's ability to to do much here, in part because I'm not sure that, even if you think about sort of the, the Moodle community at, at large, I don't know how much of that even is, um, you know, I don't even think that that's really something that Moodle Rooms or, or NetStop was the other company that they acquired. Certainly, you know, Moodle users have other, have other alternatives to, for, a, you know, for support services. And um, I don't know if I believe that that Blackboard is a community um, cares about sort of cares about the development the open source development community in the way that um, that those that those organizations would if they were sort of separate entities. So we'll see we'll see what happens there. And I again I don't I mean not to, I don't know if um, I, I don't know what that'll mean in terms of. Um, you know, the Sakai community as well now with um, Dr. Chuck also joining Blackboard. Yeah, clearly that was a big deal for you. Yeah, because I like him a lot. And he's been a, you know, he's been, I think, an important voice for arguing for interoperability between um, the LMS providers. And I'm always, I'm always sort of reluctant when sort of the, the, the largest, the largest player in the game gets to sort of dictate what it wants the community standards to look like because that's a very different thing than the community driving the standards. So lest we allow this story to be really one-sided, <laughs> I do think it's important to point out that that I actually think Moodle has a little bit of a checkered past here themselves. Yes. So um, Moodle um, what, uh, sent cease and desist letters to anybody who was um, uh, publicly... Um, announcing or putting into print that they were doing Moodle hosting. So for a long time, um, many people were complaining about the fact that as an open source uh, project, they weren't acting in a very open source way. Um, and then I, at one point in time, uh, actually applied to be a Moodle partner, uh, which is what Moodle Rooms is, as one of the partners. Um, and without their publicly acknowledging this, they had actually limited the number of partners uh, I think that um, Martin Dugamis was actually financially associated with some of these partners. And and I remember being very upset that uh, my application, uh, without my permission, was sent to a Moodle Rooms partner who then called and asked if I would want to subcontract with them. So the money piece here, you know, unfortunately, it's not a clear story on either side. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, and I think that, you know, back to your earlier comment about the, the sort of open source in education, like I think that all of these things, um, I think that sort of all these things we should sort of think and think critically about all of these things. And I, I tweeted something about open washing when I heard the news, um, something to the effect of sort of open washing is when, you know, proprietary companies sort of use the term open as a, as a marketing term without actually changing their practices. And I think that 
I mean, clearly Blackboard, you know, Blackboard was so, in some ways the the target of that. But I think that we're seeing that word open and being applied to a lot of things now in education that aren't open. They're not open source. They're not really OER. There's all sorts of strings attached uh, that make that make me, I think, make me very cautious about um, about the future of open uh, in education. We should make some Richard Stallman masks that we can put on every <laughs> once in a while. <laughs> okay, well, I guess we can move on. Big story. Yeah. Um, good, good semester. So the quote from this was, uh, Jason is bursting with ideas that he wants to tell you about. He uses a lot of superlatives. This feature is the first on the planet. That one is revolutionary. Um, he takes pride in reimagining. Yes. Is that pride well-placed? I thought that this was this was a funny story. I actually talked to Jason the morning before the Blackboard story announced, and I was set to write it up and thought, you know, even though he insisted that he's not building an LMS. I mean, and this is something that I hear from a lot of startups that are doing LMS-ish sort of products um, that they claim are not are sort of the anti-LMS. I still felt as though I should probably wait to write it until some of the you know some of the buzz around Blackboard dissipated. But I think that what he's built is a really slick is really a slick tool. Um, it's it's a little bit Evernote. It's a little bit Dropbox. It's a collaboration. It certainly has a lot of the collaboration pieces. And he's connect. You know, he's managed to get um, some of the OER providers on board to upload their open source um, open source textbooks and openly licensed notes, so that you can sort of have this global um, this global platform for for OER content, as opposed to having things just within one um, one course or one sort of institutional um, uh, product. So I, I think that there's some interesting things going on there, but um, he is pretty exuberant, and I don't know if how much that energy is sort of widely scattered or how much of it is sort of narrowly focused on moving this particular project forward. That was hard, That's hard for me to tell. Well, obviously, there's so many questions, right? Revenue strategies, right. depth of knowledge in the marketplace. But this is a guy I kind of wanted to root for because he's – taken his last year's college money to do this, right? Yeah. I mean, he's graduating a year early from Lehigh. Um, and, uh, and so he's, and he's using that, he's using that money to bootstrap his company. And, and for me personally as well, this is, you know, one of the things I, I like it when I see folks who are bootstrapping a company and figuring out a revenue model rather than ones whose revenue strategy is going and getting a uh, venture capital investment. So good for him. So for I that. think we've talked. To, I think we've talked about this. This is the entrepreneurship I like, yeah. which is um, a willingness to hear the market, to respond, and try and find something that works. You know, I've, I've said it so many times before, but um, uh, I really like Wikispaces for that reason. A very bootstrapped company. Um, this just feels so much more authentic, and it doesn't mean necessarily it's going to work. Right. But this is how I really want to see something develop. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, okay, so um, then there's 4C. Yeah. And go ahead. Uh, this is interesting. I mean, and, uh, this is an interesting story for a number of reasons, and I think this was a great week for Kickstarter because um, another another educational uh, Kickstarter um, 
uh, Kickstarter project had really rapid success. But there's something about that Kickstarter model back to the back to sort of entrepreneurship, funding, and community that I really like. And that's rather than going to the VCs, rather than going to sort of philanthropic um, organizations or even sort of your local bank, you can sort of turn it open, turn it open to the community at large, or you know perhaps not sort of ideally at large, but even sort of a community of the folks who might be most interested in what you're building and ask for them to make a small, um, you know, take us to, to give you a, a small amount of money to, to, to fund your project. I think that the crowdfunding model is, is a pretty interesting one to think about. And so 4C is, is, um, 4C is a, a, an idea for a video game to, to help teach teens and particularly um, youth um, and community organizations and activists um, to give them some better team building skills. Um, the, the program is run by uh, Nathan Mayton, who's who works closely with Jane McGonagall. He's the community uh, manager for her Gameful site. Um, and he's done a lot of thinking about game-based learning and education. And this is his sort of taking a stab at, um, at seeing if he can get some money for, for, for 4C for his video game. Yeah, a game that teaches teens team building. I didn't want to say skeptical, but aren't there... All- already good games that teach team building is there something special about this well i think that the i mean i, I think on one hand that team building is something that you absolutely do learn anytime you're working in like one of like in an in a mmorpg right so world of warcraft a lot of things that you do um re- require good teamwork um whether that's uh you know sort of putting together the right team um to, to use sort of, you know, geeky World of Warcraft terms, like, do you have enough, do you have a tank, do you have people who are going to GPS, do you have healers, but then, you know, but I think, and I, so, so I think that the, the trick is to be able to translate that sort of work into real world activism, and, or sort of real, real world team building skills, and I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that you can say that just because someone is a great team player in in a video game that they've necessarily done can necessarily think through those things in their real world scenarios. So I think that I think that Nathan's hoping that he can build a tool that helps bridge bridge some of those gaps. Well, help me if I misunderstood, but isn't sort of part of his long-term strategy to try and find a way to bring those activist teens together? Yes. And I think that um and I think that have them Think, you know, think through what are the what are the things that stop um, that sort of stop youth youth activism from from succeeding? Um, because I think that there's that moment of I mean, I you know, you see this sort of moment of great energy and excitement um, uh, when when a group of young kids decide to sort of take on a community project, and then without sort of without good support, without good sort of helping them through this, what happens when things you know, when things go awry? And is there a way to sort of intervene early so that, so that they have a better, um, better skills for being successful? So again, at the risk of sounding like the guy on the outside who doesn't know very much who gives his opinion, which I am, <laughs> why would you just not create a place for helping them in their actual projects versus creating a game space to, to learn certain skills. 
wouldn't you just sort of create a direct response kind of community for helping them? I think that there's something about the game-based the game-based learning and something about simulation that allows for people to sort of actually work through and perform through perform through scenarios. I mean, and you can you know you could think certainly think of sort of you know activist training scenarios where sort of you learn to you know um, you know I guess learn to go limp if you're being arrested might not be the <laughs> great example but wow. you know. <laughs> did you really just say that <laughs> no I didn't so we can no I didn't but I mean I think that there are ways in which you know if you can there are there are sort of simulations that you go through but can you do those in a game and not as you know is 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 a game are game-based scenarios a better way to to sort of help folks gain those skills and learn sort of the muscle memory um, around them. Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense to me if you're looking to create a sense of agency in youth to introduce youth to this capability they have to make a difference in their communities. Mm -hmm. But if you're looking for existing kind of change agents who are youth, I, I, I would think you'd want to go directly to them. But yeah. again, what do I know? Um, <laughs> You did a blog post, which was sort of kind of a, another wrap-up of your Mozilla work. Yeah, I spoke... Did another wrap-up and why? Um, I've, uh, you know, I spoke this week on the Mozilla... Uh, Mozilla has a weekly um, webmaker community call, um, and I, I had sort of five minutes to say everything I'd learned over the past month, um, uh, and sort of an, was a, an interesting experience because they conduct their calls... Um, on the phone, clearly, but then they also have the Etherpad running, which is sort of a bunch of folks taking notes and chat on the side, and it did very much make me um, miss Etherpad as a as a technology. But um, but yeah, it was just another another look through the the work that I've done for Mozilla, and we had some interesting discussions too, particularly around around HyperCard, which someone quipped that it's not really a Mozilla call about learning if there isn't an argument about what happened to HyperCard. So. How funny. Okay, so I wanted to drill down a little bit on that and, and what the lesson of HyperCard is. Because I actually heard sort of two conflicting stories there. Uh-huh. One is that simple is good but got overlooked because the the they were listening to the voices of the programmers, Apple mm -hmm. was. Mm -hmm. And the other was that simple is bad. And it felt to me like HyperCard was sort of kind of hacking at a low level. Yes. And people enjoyed that hacking at a low level. And that would be an argument for not necessarily having to put people into the professional tools right away, but to give them a space where they can hack. It may be a lower level. No, actually, I mean, I think that that's a good, I mean, I think that that's a really good, a good observation. And I would say that, you know, when we think about, um, you know, the, the, the real, the real tools, I think, um, the, the question about real tools is this notion of like, can you actually do something substantive with it? Or are you constantly stuck in this sort of abstraction in which the thing that you do and the thing that you hack at isn't real and it doesn't actually, you can't actually make something. You can't actually um, hack something. So I think that, you know, real, real can, you know, and the other piece of that too is I think that, you know, I think that in some ways the world has changed substantially since um, you know since even since the since the demise of of hypercard where we have a better we probably do have better ways to support people who are 
who want to hack, who aren't necessarily, ha who don't necessarily have any interest in being quote real software developers. I use Weebly all the time. Weebly is not a full-blown website development program, but I can get what I need to get done, and I do hack. Mm -hmm. I figure little things out, and for me, that's a great sort of scaffolding step, but I introduce people to Weebly, and then they kind of scaffold into, oh, I can get an easy thing done here. Oh, and if I really want to add HTML code, then I can figure that out. Right? And then I want to embed something else. And then you know they can kind of move on to where they want to go. And, and that actually felt to me like a really authentic way to think about learning programming. Yeah. No, and I think that there's, I think that there's something, there's really something to that. And I think that, you know, the, the piece of that that's interesting about, about I think, about HyperCard is that you, you could build sort of, pheno you know, phenomenally interesting and powerful things with it but you really could just sort of solve your own solve your own problems and i think that that sort of authentic problem solving is very different than necessarily training a, f a future training future software engineers i think that that's an important sort of distinction to think about the, the story reminded me of the fact that there is no good hackable relational database program for the web it phenomenally interesting to me that even after all of this time, we still don't have a good way of the the sort of hack user uh, showing good relational database activity on the web. I know that doesn't relate to HTML5 necessarily, but <laughs> no, it was but interesting to think that even after all this time, we don't have that. No, and I but I think that you know you know thinking back to all of you know all of the folks that I talked to, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I think the you know conversation I had with John Adele was so important because I think that we have to, you know, there are so many pieces to the components of the web. And even if we think about sort of what happens in the browser client side, you know, we st I think that there are still some of these mechanics um, like the database, like the server that are really important for us to consider. Okay, so now we get to move into the uh, news of the week. Yes. And... Um, We'll skip the Blackboard story. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, the uh, Atlantic Journal-Constitution publishes a story where they analyze scores from some 70,000 schools and looking at patterns, they believe there were some 200 schools where the patterns matched the cheating scandal that happened in Atlanta. Not the only cheating story this week, but uh, tell me what you think about this. Well, I think that... This is this is one of the this is a story that um, when I first heard them the news that this was going to break I thought this was very interesting and particularly with all of the other data stories that we've seen in the news in the last um, month or so particularly the data the teacher data reports out of New York City um, I think we need to have some we need to have journalists who are really smart and savvy when it comes to using data, looking at data, but then also help, and helping the public understand data, and then being quite open with their methodologies of how, you know, how they made certain conclusions. And my fear with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution story is that they really aren't, they really aren't that open with, with that. There's no um, sort of the methodology and the data is still sort of behind closed doors. Um, although they've made an interface where you can look and see if your school is suspected of cheating, um, there's really not a lot of openness about what 
um, how how they reached their conclusions, other than they said that sort of these test scores were anomalous um, and perhaps followed the same pattern that indicated there would be cheating. So in a related story, at least uh, related to cheating, there was the announcement that the SAT and ACT exams are going to require students to provide photo IDs, both when they sign up to take the test and then when they show up to take them. Okay, so this is where I sort of felt like we were at a MacGuffin red right. herring yes. moment. Yes, yes, because it becomes about test is, security, right? Right, all, all of a sudden it becomes about test security, and the underlying question of the validity of these kinds of tests gets kind of pushed aside exactly. in the drive toward the security. Yes, I mean, I think that that's, I think that that's the, the big problem. I, I mean, one of, the, you know, one of the things I felt about the Atlanta, uh, the Atlanta newspaper story was that they found anomalies. They said the anomalies were probably cheating. Um, but there was no, and that, that, that was sort of like the foregone conclusion, the narrative that they were, were sort of subscribed to. But there was no sort of, there was no sort of asking, what if the anomalies are just anomalies? And it's actually... A, it actually demonstrates that standardized testing is a really lousy way to track progress of students, to track progress and improvement of schools, to track teachers' performance year over year. The, pl the first place that they went to is this data, the, the, you know, the data shows that there's cheating, rather than taking a step back and saying, wow, all of these, all of these anom anomalies show that standardized tests are a really lousy way to assess anything. The cheating story inherently supports the tests are valid story. Right. That's the, that was the difficulty for me, or at least it obscures the, the larger questions. Yeah. Um, Princeton Review sells off its test prep division to a private equity firm. I don't really know how to read these stories. When Blackboard gets sold to a private equity firm, when Princeton sells off a test prep division, what should I be reading in place of the phrase private equity firm? Well, What's this, actually going on? You know, I think that this is... Um, there have been a number, there's been a lot of scrutiny lately in the for-profit online education and for-profit tutoring realm. And that's certainly Princeton Review. Um, it's certainly, I think, the name that most people associate with, 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 with the tutoring and test prep industry. Um, I think that as federal regulators are questioning some of these practices, it is very interesting to see, um, and I haven't, you know, I don't, I don't pay attention close enough attention to the stock market, but um, to, to sort of know how they've been faring lately. But I think that it is interesting to see companies that aren't doing well in the public eye and certainly are under regulatory scrutiny now suddenly are no longer publicly traded companies, and that it's time for a brand reset. I, I should I should add here too that. Um, Joshua Kim, who also blocks blogs at Inside Higher Ed, this is one of his predictions: is that we'll see a blackboard, we'll see a blackboard reset in terms of branding um, in the next year. Blackboard will change its name, and and they can do that because they're not under the pressure of quarterly reports and results. Right. Or, got it. Interesting. Okay, so South Korea makes a surprising move. But maybe to some of us, not that surprising. <laughs> it doesn't seem that surprising to me. I mean, and I think that, you know, it's funny how other, how we sort of look to other other countries as sort of the things that um, perhaps the models of what we should and shouldn't be doing. South Korea famously said that by 2015, they were going to be fully digital with with textbooks. And now they're, they're sort of backing away from that 
um, from that initiative. Uh, strangely said, noting that there's too much um, addiction to the internet among the youth there, which seemed like a, an odd, an odd response. Um, but certainly, I think that this notion that digital textbooks are are either better learning tools and or cost savings is certainly something that um, I <laughs> I'm skeptical of, even if the FCC uh, and its and its buddies um, might not agree. Well, we've talked about textbooks so many times. What's really funny to me is I'll read a story or hear somebody talking about, well, if we could just put all our textbooks on devices, then the kids wouldn't have these 100-pound backpacks. Right. And I'm, and I'm now I, – I don't even respond. It's like <laughs> I, I, somehow I've gotten to a fatigue point with the su- superficial stories. It's like I, I don't even really want to get into the full conversation. Yeah. Well, it was it was um, it was interesting because the FCC did have a big digital textbook meeting this week, in which they um, they invited a long list of um, a long list of of sort of technology companies and cell phone providers and publishers and nary a OER organization uh, to, to or teacher uh, to to the to the table, but it was funny that they you know that. That this this does seem to be a big a big push does still seem to be a big push here. They released the report as a PowerPoint presentation, a PDF of a PowerPoint presentation, <laughs> no which to way. me which to me is just the icing on the cake. Well, let's just say that the snarky Audrey is back. <laughs> I I I, re- I didn't realize how much I missed it until I until I read this line. I mean, Audrey says I lie awake at night. Worrying if the cell phone carriers are going to have a stake in the national textbook discussions. Well, they are. Sprint and T-Mobile were both there, although AT&T wasn't, which I thought was interesting. Well, why wasn't Verizon or Verizon, invited? Verizon or, or Comcast. So I guess, I guess they're not friends with, uh, with the FCC, perhaps. There's, perhaps that's the other, the other things that they're all involved in right now. I don't know. We can speculate. <laughs> It is so interesting to watch this, to see that for many people, what is clearly here a very superficial narrative is their only narrative. Yes. And it worries me. I don't know how to, I don't know how to think about getting to a deeper level on these issues, knowing that the superficial narrative in large part is going to carry the day politically and financially. Right. That's, that's really frightening. Okay, so in a really brilliant moment, the New York City Department of Ed decides they want to ban 50 words, phrases, concepts from their standardized tests. Uh, why was this just so weird? Well, I mean, I should say that the that standardized test companies do this all the time. I think that there, are, you know, there are ways in which they try that they that they do try to keep sort of controversial. Um, Controversial sort of uh, terms, and also terms that are perhaps only, uh, you know, culturally relevant or relevant to a few sort of socioeconomic classes. They do try to sort of keep that out. But they did list um, the list of terms that uh, that 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 the city wants to f- forbid in standardized tests was funny, partially because it was really was a list of sort of sex, drugs, rock and roll, cancer, bodily functions, and divorce. So. Nothing, you know, homelessness, unemployment, nothing, and probably really nothing that would sort of have any sort of relevance to the life of of kids um, today. So, fascinating. 
Okay. Um, a high school senior was expelled following his tweeting a string of expletives. Um, it uh, This took place at 2.30 a.m. One of the stories I read said that it was on a school-controlled computer. So it actually went through the school's network before it went out. Um, but but how do we feel about the, these sort of fuzzy areas of um, of control and agency? Is this just another kind of place we're going to have to negotiate? Well, you know, we've we've I think that there have, there have been several stories over the last few weeks where we've talked about these First Amendment rights that students may or may not have when it comes to um, social media, and I think that this was. You know, this this raises all sorts of interesting questions. Would it have mattered if it was on his device? Like if, so, he, if he tweeted from his phone, if he'd sent, because you can, you know, you can send tweets through SMS. Um, so, if he tweeted on his phone that went over his own carrier network, is that is are his? Is it does it matter if he's in the building with his cell phone? Does it matter if it's on a school device? Does it matter? Um, does does the device? Is the device and the location of the device um, uh, what matters, or is it sort of students' behavior anytime, anywhere on the web, the issue that's at stake? Um, and then, sort of, what and what are the penalties when, you know, I mean, it was he was seventeen, and it, he it was a string, you know, he dropped the f bomb. I think as many times as you can sort of squeeze that word into a one hundred and forty character tweet, he he managed to do so, but it, you know. It, and is that something that warrants expulsion, um, or is this another reminder that we really are failing to do a good job teaching digital citizenship uh, t- to students? And then, and what, and what should schools do in terms of tracking tracking students um, online? Oh, I'm guessing you didn't hear that because I had my mute on. Oh. <laughs> I <was> like, <laughs> so I think oh, this is Skype, I, not again. <laughs> I, I think this is going to be a story that a theme that we talk about quite a bit coming up, which is as more and more data is available, the temptation to be a surveillance culture yes. versus an agency culture becomes really a predominant um, conflict. Yes, and and we're seeing that both in politics and in education, and this whole question of. Um, now that you have access to something that somebody says off campus but is public, you, you know, how do you treat that? And and if he had said this at a party or some kind of a gathering, would that have been grounds for expelling him from school? And, and uh, you know, th- these are really difficult questions. Well, Not I, for me necessarily. And I think, you know, I think it does tie back to the SAT and the ACT um, asking for student student. F- photographs too because this isn't just a matter of I'll show you I'll flash you a picture of my driver's license when I walk in the door I mean they are creating a database of of you know a database of photos of students and thinking about the ways in which quickly any time a company like that sort of amasses um, a data data about us how easy it is for them to be to use this as a surveillance uh, surveillance tool um, and I think that you know whether it's handed that information is handed over to schools um, or, or not, I think that, that certainly the 
um, yeah, I think that that's, that's something that we should be concerned about. Uh, the movie Bully comes out, and it's being released unrated. Yeah, which is usually the which um, is usually the kiss of death when it comes to uh, to controversial films. The ratings, you know, this sort of outside the scope of this podcast, but the you know the rating system is something that's a pretty uh, interesting process in this country. And the MPAA wanted to slap a rating of R um, on this movie, which is about school bullying. Um, which meant that nobody actually in the age group that the film sort of speaks to would be able to go and see it without having an adult. Um, and so uh, Weinstein uh, companies said they're going to do it without a rating, which means that it probably won't be able to play in as many theaters, which is, I think, uh, the catch-22. A lot of sort of like local, you know, chain, or not local, a lot of chains won't play movies that are unrated. Is the new Khan Academy Labs project uh, explorations worth talking about? No. <laughs> so instead, let's talk about the fact that the Anglophone world in the U.S. still generate the lion's share of publishing online. I thought I had read that China had surpassed us in that regard. Yeah, I thought I had too, and I thought I and I don't know if um, this was so. This was a an excerpt or a sort of a look in the Atlantic at a, at another book um, to that effect. But I think it's certainly um, if if those if those uh, you know if if those figures are true, I think it has interesting implications when we think about um, open educational resources and sort of in what ways you know in what ways does when we say global are we really talking about sort of um are we really talking about the angle or sort of the anglophone world and how can we recognize the local um and how can we sort of make sure that oer is about local knowledge um and not just what the openly licensed content from north america looks like I read a piece by Ed Gregert, um, who f former CEO something of uh, Iron, who just um, semi-retired, but it was in uh, I think it was in Huffington Post, and I was blown away by the statistic he gave that only 1,600 high school students in the U.S. participate in an exchange program every year. Wow. Now, now, I lived over. I lived in Brazil for a year as a high school student with the American Field Service, um, and I guess probably I might have been able to come to that number think, thinking about it. But it is kind of stunning, and he points out just how little contact most uh, students have with with actual other cultures. And I think that number in college only goes up to about two percent of college students. Well, I've, I mean, I've heard that the the number of Americans who actually have passports is sort of abysmal, uh, 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 is sort of abysmally small. And I think that, you know, despite, I mean, this was interesting too. Thinking about the one of the um, the Busu dot com and their language learning, um, uh, and, and they're they're not. I don't believe that they're a U.S. company, but sort of thinking about the desire to sort of learn languages for travel and a boom really in online language learning. Um, sort of what does that actually does that translate into traveling to other places or or are we sort of doing foreign exchanges sort of virtually now? I, I don't know. 
Yeah, and there may even be a deeper story there. I mean, in a lot of ways, the demographics of the United States are changing enough that you could justify language learning even just for, like, if you were going to be working in California or Texas, you know, to, to make sure that you were conversant with students for whom English wasn't their first language. But um, interesting. I, I there is You have the story in here about the um, language barometer. Mm-hmm. Right, um, the strong support for online learning, but the sort of low numbers who said that it was fun. Yeah, and then you know, and then that that at the same time, sort of that given is the reason why people say they want to learn a foreign language. Of course, sort of traveling is is the number one reason, but people say they want to learn another language because it's fun. But then online language learning is sort of not fun. Um, I sort of it's it's hard to sort of know anytime these these surveys are sort of sort of hard to dig deep into the data um, uh, to sort of say too much about them. But that, but that was one of the contrasts that really um, stuck out in my, in my head. And the other one is sort of, you know, the, the ease in that survey, the ease with which it is, you know, the ease with which you can now, thanks to the Internet, co- you know, converse with native speakers, whereas, you know, before sort of you were sort of hopefully, hopefully you sort of, your, your, your foreign language teacher was a native speaker. I mean, that was, unless, you know, unless you had the opportunity to travel abroad, that was your, that was sort of your opportunity. I think things have changed with the internet. And as you said, things have changed with demographics as well. Uh, Jim Groom uh, hits a goal within 24 hours and at Kickstarter. How much money did he raise? Um, he was, I think he was looking for $4,000. And I, last time I peaked, they were already over 5000 and so this is just an open online course. Is this it is, open to anybody? Yes, this is so DS106, the Digital Storytelling 106, is um, a course in um, University of Mary Washington is where he teaches that they've done a number of times and sort of developed, it's, I would say it's sort of developed an interesting, an interesting online community. And unlike some of the other MOOCs, I think that this one has a very different flavor for it. It's a different, very different flavor to it. I mean, clearly, this is digital storytelling class is quite different than artificial intelligence class. So the kinds of things that you do and make and build in DS106 are very different than the programming assignments in some of these other um, massive online classes. Um, but I think this is also an interesting, you know, this is, as I said earlier with, you know, with Nathan's Kickstarter program, I think that thinking about what does it mean to be able to do fundraising this mean, this way, um, and the success of Jim Groom and DS106 is a reflection of a very strong online community. And sort of how, so what does that mean if you perhaps, uh, if you are someone who has an idea that you aren't as, you know, you aren't perhaps part of such a strong online community? I mean, I don't know, you know, I don't mean that as sort of a criticism of, of, of Jim at all, but I think it's sort of another interesting moment for people to think about sort of building out their relationships online for reasons that they perhaps hadn't thought of before. Fascinating. Well, Audrey, another interesting week. Indeed. Indeed. Thank you so much. Thanks. Really love all, all that you do. Thanks, Steve. Okay. Bye now. Bye.